podcast. My name is Richard Rudge. This is a podcast for all kinds of fiction, from books to comics to films to video games. And I'm here with my host, co-host even, uh, Sarah. Hello. How's it going, Sarah? Not too bad, actually. Yeah, I'm, it's been a long time since we've done this. So yes, I'm, yes. I'm full of trepidation, but excitement. Yes, we're going to shake all the rust off and uh, get the rust. our vocal cords going. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yes, it has been a while, and uh, last time we talked very in-depth about Star Wars, and I'm going to surprise you here with a little thing I, I picked up in the works. It is a small chain of shops in the UK here. Um, so I was randomly visiting because I had some time to kill, and they have a big discount on books at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I found in their little graphic novel section Star Wars manga adaptations. Excellent. Yeah, so it's it, there's only I only, I picked up like the first volume of Episode One and like the second volume of Return of the Jedi because that's all they had, but um, like the art inside is like fantastic looking. But I I bring this up because it's such a weird thing because for one they're Star Wars adaptations, so it's Japanese adaptation of an American sci-fi film, mm-hmm. but they are English translations, right. So it's both been bought, retranslated back to English, but because it's a manga, they flip the pages so it now reads like left to right instead of right to left. Do you have any idea when these were produced? Uh, I'm going to say early 2000s. Mm, that that but, sounds about right to me. Yeah, because it, it's, it's clearly at a time where manga wasn't really that present in the, American, in like the Western audience, so it's uh-huh. kind of a... So the the process it's gone over to Japan and came back again and like <laughs> it's a bit like running things through Google Translate like eight times. Yes, yes, <laughs> but perhaps only a couple of times. Yeah, and the interesting thing through it is that like most of the char- the non-human characters have like the license likenesses down like a hundred percent. So like Darth Vader looks like Darth Vader, Yoda looks like Yoda. But all the like human characters are very like mangaized. Uh huh. So like almost borderline unrecognizable. But and like Han Solo looks like still looks like the biggest sleazeball, but like a really <laughs> really attractive sleazeball. Uh, now are we going to get into Harrison Ford's uh, attractiveness? <laughs> uh, we can do it if you want. <laughs> I don't personally have strong feelings, but I I definitely get the impression he's kind of like ugly hot like his features <laughs> shouldn't work together but they do perhaps just through charisma but okay. anyway that is <laughs> mostly irrelevant to our yes d- discussion <laughs> but yes it's like i'm i'm glad i picked this up because the artwork is actually really really nice mm-hmm. and it's just interesting seeing such a weird thing because i really just picked them up because they're such a weird like artifact of like of the early 2000s yeah of like uh, like importing manga and like Japanese culture to the West, even though they're like literally Amer- like ex- exported American <laughs> culture, re-exported back to America. It's weird. The the early two thousands, I think that's about the right time scale. Um, manga explosion and especially Tokyo Pop is really fascinating. I don't know if you know much about it, but I know little bits about Tokyo Pop in that you fact. Just the fact that you shouldn't trust them. <laughs> yeah, all. I figured like as a comic book guy, that's the sort of thing you'd be aware of. But yeah, they had some like very sketchy um, uh, contracts in the, like mid two thousands before yeah. they disappeared. But then they're apparently now back again. Yeah, which is why so... all this stuff is coming out again. And it's so it's it's yeah, I'm drawn to drama, so <laughs> I'm yeah. very fascinated by this stuff. Yeah, I mean because the Star Wars are uh, like. Licenses at the time, it's da- it was Dark Horse Comics who like did all the Star Wars comics for about twenty years. Mm-hmm. So, it, who I don't think they did much manga stuff. I might be wrong about that, but it's so that's why it's like doubly weird. Mm. It's because a company that doesn't really trade in in manga has not much manga. But yeah, moving on. <laughs> that's a weird aside that I thought I'd just bring up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is once again superhero season, and. Uh, Kicking off the year was a like a, a weird side thing to the the regular superhero thing, which is called Deadpool. And Deadpool, for me, well, I'll just ask you first. How much do you know about Deadpool before you saw the film, Sarah? Um, 
I I haven't read. I don't think I've actually read any of the comics that he's in, but I'm kind of <laughs> in a appropriately meta sort of way familiar with with why he's popular and why people enjoy the character so much and why he's a different to to many of the other characters in his kind of addressing the fourth wall and um being sexualized despite being male and stuff like that so um yeah and his relationship with death that's a thing i imagine i I read a few a few years ago so it wasn't buzzfeed but a similar sort of like this is why deadpool is really cool article you know list (laughs) style article but that's that's about the extent of my knowledge to be honest i am well i'm probably more familiar but still less than 100 percent familiar Mm mm-hmm in the sense that I read a series of books called Cable and Deadpool in the mid-2000s, which were basically how he existed in the mid-2000s, which he was paired up with Cable, which is like another X-Men character. And obviously, as you said, the the reason why Deadpool is popular is because he's a primarily comedy character who pretty much can't die and like has some serious psychosis in the fiction of comics where he thinks he's in a comic book. (laughs) So... So every other character just thinks he's insane, whereas we know he's just breaking the fourth wall, uh-huh. and and th- and that's in, in itself why he's popular. And uh, it's interesting you bring up the sexualization part because it's off, it's been hotly debated, I think, since the film came out about if he is indeed like what his sexual orientation is or not. And like I think a few of the original writers have debated that as well, and that it's often come up that. Oftentimes, where he is like uh, perceived as being gay, it's is often for like comedy value, mm-hmm. as much more than straight up like sexual uh, attraction, I guess. Which it's it's the debate of wh- whether like the intention is like to take the the comedy side or the actual, you know, whether he is meant to be that that orientation or not. Yeah, I think it's. It's telling, though, that obviously he he is a fictional character and doesn't have much concept personally, um, as he is not, um, what's the word? As he's not real, he's not personally worried about protecting his masculinity. But it's interesting because I don't think you'd you'd get away with insinuating many of the more kind of macho characters were gay. And there's definitely... There's there's a room to explore that within his character, which isn't true of many many others. And obviously, you then get into kind of is it problematic that you can only explore being gay through through humour? But that's you know I let's not get into that because that is a whole kind of thesis paper. Yes, it's it's a whole kettle of fish. Um, so onto onto the movie itself. Uh, what did you think, Sarah? Uh, I enjoyed it. I. I yeah I'm, I mean it was a fun movie um, not not five stars from me something about it felt a little bit I don't know not off but I I wasn't a hundred percent missing satisfied. something yeah 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 for, for for me as someone coming in with with an established relationship with the character it felt true to the character but and in a sense that the, the comedy of the movie felt true to the character because. At times it felt funny, and at times it felt really annoying. Because that—that that is Deadpool in a nutshell. He's most people think he's annoying in, in the fiction of the world. And um, I thought the main point I felt from it was that the pacing for like the first half of the movie was just off for me. Yeah, I saw in, you say that. In that, like, it kept flashing back briefly, and then flashing back totally, mm-hmm. and that. I like it. I don't think it needed that that uh, progression. It, it, a more linear progression might have felt the speed of it better. Like if it just got to the point where he felt fell, he cut off his hand and fell in the dump truck, and then flashback. Uh huh. And then then it got up to speed. I don't know. A lot of it felt like they were doing the back and forth flashback for jokes rather than um, structural necessity. If you see what I mean. Yeah, like playing with the structure. For the sake of playing with the structure, not necessarily for any kind of artistic payoff or anything. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I felt. And um, overall, I, th- I thought the comedy nailed it. There was a, as I say, it, it mixed between 
it fired so often on the jokes that more hit than missed. Mm-hmm. But they they kind of go go so fast that you don't care that some of the jokes missed in a sense. Yeah. For me, anyway. No, I would agree with that, and it's it's kind of unambiguously an action comedy, which is is just inherently quite a fun genre, I think, if it works, and I think Deadpool did work. Yeah, for a superhero genre that is becoming more and more serious, as like the stakes are raised and like the characters become more grim, dark. Mm. Like like I saw the trailer for Superman vs Batman was before this film. And I just have no interest in seeing that film because it's so dark and so brooding and angry. It, it's everything that I don't like about like the '90s comics that Deadpool even came from. Mm-hmm. That are so serious and so like overly violent and nasty. Do you think it's um, people trying to justify the superhero genre as a serious thing that adults are allowed to like? Yes, but you would have thought they. It felt like they achieved that after the Dark Knight films, you know. Mm. They they they'd already gone for like the the super serious and, and achieved a level of seriousness that didn't feel cheap. Yeah. In the, in those films, so and it, it may be just like a Zack Snyder film cause, thing because maybe I just don't get along with his type of <laughs> filmmaking, but <laughs> um, that's a bigger story. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some like attempt at being something different from uh, previous superhero films which have felt maybe a bit lighter so they went completely darker, I don't know mm-hmm. but but contrasting that, Deadpool just came out so <laughs> <laughs> it's in the, in the conversation we're having that and it's a bit of an apparent success so the, the lighter film is apparently working so yeah and, um, I'm not sure, with... sorry I'm interrupted you Go on, I'm not on. sure I'd I'd describe Deadpool as lighter, like even though it is funny, but yeah, mm, it, maybe that's semantics. I don't know, but it, it it mixes in between. It jumps very hardly from like dark subject matter to comedy. Mm. So it's because like the amount of jokes ver- in Deadpool versus what is going to be Superman versus Batman. Not that we've seen it, but <laughs> it might just I'm... be a laugh riot. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's that's the kind of point I'm trying to make. But um, uh, yeah, there's a the other thing that I felt kind of off about the film is the other one of my favorite X Men characters is Colossus. Mm-hmm. So I was quite happy to hit him to be in this film and have something more of a starring role. But his Russian accent may be one of the worst things I've <laughs> heard in a while. Is that what it was? <laughs> Yeah, I think it was meant to be. Yeah, <laughs> Carlos is Russian. He's in, in his origin, so he's obviously had like a weirdly cartoonish Russian accent in this film. And um, he's he's a character that is along with Deadpool for the longest time in in the like, live action portrayals and stuff. I've missed the point entirely mm-hmm. because it's like Colossus is meant to be like this like very sheepish and shy pacifist character who can also turn his skin into organic steel and punch a truck in half. There's kind of a weird contrast in his, in his character and his abilities. Whereas this kind of... He kind of felt too dumb in, in a lot of ways and like almost existing in a different film. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of... Um, I, yeah, um, an unchanging character. Like, kind of... Yeah, I'm. I'm not expressing myself very well. I wanted to elaborate on you calling him dumb, which I can see, but um... he 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 felt more very strictly in in his own morals, and that he was never going to change, and that he was simply there to constantly be trying to make Deadpool better. Yes, he's like and, bedrock. <laughs> yes, and and not 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 a fully fleshed out character. Simply there is to be the the guy telling the audience that Deadpool is do, what what Deadpool is doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. So, he didn't feel like a fully fleshed out character but, I to me. I really enjoyed the joke when they go round to the mansion and there's only the two X-Men. And the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it being the only two that the studio could afford. Because I was thinking that the whole time and then they said it and that's yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. always a joy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and, and the fact that Colossus never goes back from his metal skin, you, you never see the actor's actual face, mm. which I thought was a bit tragic for him, but uh, <laughs> um, 
speaking of the other X uh, men member, uh, Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Uh huh. <laughs> what did you think of her? Because um, she, the film version of her is very like different for the well, not very different, but completely different in power set and like origin. Yeah. The actual uh, comic book character, because I thought it was interesting that I read up this morning on like some of the kind of uh, guest characters where they basically like just taken names they looked like they, that were cool and made completely different characters out of them. Mm-hmm. So like Teenage Ninja Sonic Warhead and um, Angel. Yeah. So they're Angel, like I think he's called Angel Dust in the comics, and she's just a very very low tier like. Only in like the background of certain comics, kind of character had nothing really to do with her, and they just kind of boosted up this character into a bigger thing. The same with Teenage Negasonic Warhead, who was in the comics a um, a precognitive telepath, which is nothing like the film. Nothing much like her name either. No, <laughs> and um, I, I read up on that as well. And um, Grant Morrison, who created the character, apparently took that from a Monster Magnet song. So. There you go. <laughs> I don't think it's meant to mean anything. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I I enjoyed her character. I've read um I read an article about why um Negasonic Teenage Warhead is the feminist superhero we have been needing. Which yeah, I can I can get behind that. I yeah, she's she's just a fun character, and her powers are mm. cool. And um, but she also didn't do too much in the film no but in the in the final fight she was kind of the most effective fighter oh yeah yeah for sure and nobody really did much except for deadpool i would argue yeah that's true but i hope and and the fact that she's a character who's been more or less created from scratch gives them a lot of a lot of room to use her again and and the actress said you know she she would love to come back for Deadpool too, but there's no, no news on that. I don't think. But yeah, but yeah I think. I mean, she's cool. did you stay for the right at the end of the credits teaser? Yes, yes. Yes, where they, where they tease Cable being there, mm-hmm. which I'm excited about. But I have no idea how they're going to do that at all. But that's it's if if you if you want me to go into the complicated backstory of Cable. I'll be happy to, but it, it will take another podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, my brother was telling me something about about that, but I kind of zoned out because, <laughs> you know, I went to see the film at like half past eight, so by the time we were leaving the cinema, I really needed to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the one minor thing that I th- that felt a bit odd about Deadpool's um, interaction with Teenage Negasonic Warhead was... Um, he he felt a bit too daddish mm. in talking to her, whereas I never ever see Deadpool as that. Like he was like, "Oh, you're a teenager. You're gonna respond two ways." Like in it, I don't know. It felt a bit weird to me. Does it have to be a, a dad thing, or is it just a you are a different generation thing? Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Yeah, I've, I've, overall, I thought it was an enjoyable film, and it is pretty true to the origins. I was like double checking on that as well. Um, they only kind of just skip over minor details in the fact that uh, originally Deadpool gets his powers literally injected from Wolverine. He literally has mm-hmm. Wolverine's regenerative abilities. I loved all the Hugh Jackman jokes; they were great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and um, the jokes about. Um, Ryan Reynolds' previous attempts at being Deadpool and the Grid Lantern were quite clever as well. Uh huh. The, the the point where Colossus throws Deadpool and he says, "Oh, things are going a bit sideways," and they cut to the flashback of him holding an action figure of his appearance in the X Men Origins Wolverine film. Yes, yeah, that was where Deadpool had like samurai swords coming out his wrists and his mouth taped shut mm-hmm. or something, and it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but... But yeah, I thought I, I I enjoyed it. It needed some, as I say, pacing changes. Well, not changes, but it didn't work for me in that sense. In sense, in the sense of the pacing. But um, and yeah, I enjoyed it. Me too. And I think it was kind of a, a risky prospect because it's an R-rated film, so that's always like financially a worry for the studios. And Deadpool 
if you if you're not familiar with Deadpool, then he's quite a strange guy to to yes. warm up to, and um, this is me being an old person and clutching my pearls. But the violence and sex were like pretty strong for a fifteen, in my opinion. Yes, I was really like, st- um, <laughs> the opening scene where like one gets spattered against a road sign, one gets his head lopped off, and like pretty violent. I mean, what is an R rating in America? Is it because it's if it's a fifteen in the UK, does that mean it's the same? Um, or is it higher? I don't know. I think it's restricted seventeen, and um, if you're over seventeen, you can go in alone. But if you're under seventeen, you can be accompanied by an adult. But I'm not. I'm not an expert. But normally, it does kind of translate to a fifteen over here in yeah. my in my recollection. Anyway, yeah, a couple of eight years difference, but it's not. Yeah, and yet, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, there was lots of, yeah, there. was actually quite a surprising amount of sex. <laughs> yeah, and in the what is it called? The BBFC. Um, like you know when it says strong violence and all that it says yeah. the sex references and i was like um, <laughs> i'm not sure they stopped at references but okay guys <laughs> well I, sp- I suppose they don't in fact show the literal act i guess but but yeah i don't think it yes. was kind of out of place or anything i was just a bit surprised that it it yeah. got a 15 rating hmm. i mean i mean when Half the jokes are about Deadpool um, pleasuring himself. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I, sp- I suppose I don't think they would do an eighteen-level superhero of a named character, but mm. anytime soon. But it's it's one of the weird things. Like talk, going back to Batman vs Superman, I think they announced literally the day I, w- I went to see Deadpool that be- like they're going to do an R-rated cut of Batman vs Superman. Right. Like, and the success of Deadpool's like brought to the attention of the movie executives like does that mean we're going to get a load of like really like violent superhero films maybe i think it'll be interesting because deadpool as i said is such a uh a different kind of superhero movie than ones we've perhaps had in the past and it'd be interesting to see with superhero movies being such a big industry um it'd be interesting to see what impact it has because it's had a really positive really strong response yeah and I mean, it's part of his character that the violence is there mm. in a certain way, and it, and that R rating or higher higher age rating could work for say Wolverine, mm. who in in the past his moves have had him stab people and no blood appear. <laughs> and like I I, I remember the X Men cartoon from the nineties. Obviously, he he was in it, Wolverine, and he would always like unsheath his not his wrist knives or whatever they're called claws and they'll like never stab anyone <laughs> like you would never see him actually use them in, in the cartoon he would always unsheath them and then never use them because <laughs> they were never allowed to actually show anything happening because of the <laughs> tv ratings but <laughs> i always thought it was amusing but um yeah it would work for wolverine and say like if they ever did another punisher film that would that would obviously be a thing but he's obviously in the tv show mm-hmm. in uh, daredevil um which is coming back soon Yes, apparently the trailer is very exciting, but I haven't seen it. It w- it it was good, and it it brings up the debate of it. Like, teenage me would always think the Punisher is cool, but me age now thinks the Punisher is like a weird sociopath that should, should never be called a hero, kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just he is a a superhero without morals, killing everyone whether they really deserve it or not, kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's quite alarming and, and to look back on what your teenage self made of um, moral quandaries. <laughs> yeah. Not everything is black and white, as the Punisher deems it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's going to be the whole debate of the Daredevil season. Which uh-huh. is like, Daredevil is, is, has always been a non-killing hero, whereas obviously Punisher is. But yes, moving on, I think we've uh, we've drained the well of superhero talk, I think, today. Okay, okay. And um, do you want to tell me what Hamilton is? Oh, well, I'm actually really late to the fandom, or so I feel, because back in 2009, Lin-Manuel Miranda was invited to to be part of um, like 
American experiences, something like that. They invited a bunch of artists to come and perform, uh, I think at the White House, but anyway, for the Obamas. And he was invited on the strength of his first musical, which, you know, he wrote when he was like a teenager or something. He's just very upsettingly talented and amazing. Um, But yeah, um, on the basis of his first musical, In the Heights, which is currently... um, on at uh, in London um, in King's Cross Theatre and it's really good you should see it um, but it's based around um, Washington Heights and this this group of people who are all um, basically an entirely Latino community and all that anyway he was he was invited on the basis of that kind of I think they expected him to perform something from in the Heights but instead he was like you know what I'm I'm going to rap about Alexander Hamilton and it's going to be amazing. And he did it and it was. And now it's his his show in which, you know, he he wrote it and is starring in it and and he's playing Alexander Hamilton. Um that's on in on Broadway and it's sold out and everybody loves it and it's amazing and the cast album just won the Grammy and oh, it's oh Hamilton, man. But anyway, um, do, do you know anything about Alexander Hamilton? I know next to nothing. Is there something about banks in there? Yeah, he basically created this one guy. He created America's financial system, um, and it's this is this is a big part of why it's a fascinating story and why why he decided, having read an eight hundred page biography of the guy, decided. You know what? This would great make a great hip hop musical. <laughs> um, he was, um, you know, an orphan. He grew up in the Caribbean, and then he um, was an immigrant, moved to New York, um, got caught up in kind of the revolution, um, became like BFFs with Washington, um, and yeah, just rose up through the ranks through his pure kind of talent and intelligence and and then but his pride is what killed him it's the perfect musical story it's the perfect narrative arc just and it just happened like 500 years ago or whatever and now it's an amazing hip-hop musical Mm, okay so so to to give a little context for me um kind of what style does it kind of obviously it's set quite very part of the past but like if it's what kind of uh, musical influences does it take apart from just simply hip hop? Um, well, number one, it's very, it's very embedded in the musical theatre tradition. Like Lin Manuel Miranda is, he he knows his stuff basically, um, and I think he said he wanted to create musicals. He wanted to get into musical theatre because his parents were into kind of cast recordings, and he saw that every time they played the Les Mis recording, his mum would just sit down and cry at Bring Him Home. And he was just like, you know, noticed and and acknowledged how much power, genuine kind of ability to communicate emotions and and artistry through musical theatre and thought, hey, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Which, you know, I I strongly believe he could do anything he puts his mind to. I'm very, very impressed by him. Um, So yeah, it's... It's very, it, yeah, it it fits very much into the musical tradition, while updating it, I think, and um, there's a lot of references to kind of '90s rap in there, um, and it's sung through. So the characters, they they just rap to each other. They just freestyle. That's that's just how they talk. Um, but there's also um, kind of a Beatles-inspired number sung by King George. And it it the musical registers do change uh, depending on which character is is speaking. And one fun thing is they have the Marquis de Lafayette, who is French, and he speaks entirely in a French accent, of course, because he's French. Yeah. Um, and when we first meet him, he is you can see he's struggling to speak English, but then kind of by the end of his story, he is rapping something like I think it's nine point six words per second no that must be too much 6.3 anyway he he does the fastest rap in the whole show and it's a fun kind of continuum for that character and oh 
yeah, there's, there's a lot going on and it's really great. It's really great musically and so complicated but effective and really good tunes, to be honest. Yes. So have you just... So is it just... Um, have you just listened to it at, at this point or is it on 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 tour in the UK yet or...? Um, it's about to go on tour in the US. So, so far it's only been in New York City. Um, but... 2017 it's possibly coming to the west mm. end which is oh, too exciting mm. too exciting um, and i mean sorry go i on. mean how much do you th- well how much do you think it could t- your change your experience of like seeing it it, it uh, played out on a stage versus li- just simply listening to it i mean i don't know because um with it being entirely sung through the whole plot because with the musicals, it, you'd listen to the songs, and in isolation, it wouldn't really make that much sense. Yeah. But as it's sung through, you do get the whole story, and if you just listen to it, you can follow the story. But of course, seeing seeing it acted out and the choreography and stuff would add a whole new dimension. I think that isn't that is a kind of smart decision to have it all all as you say sung through and and have all the story in part of the music itself and not. Not compartmentalized out into individual songs and 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 kind of have it be tra- translated just to audio alone, so it works in a digital format basically. Yeah, and it's just it's just kind of like opera, like that's entirely sung through and that's unremarked on because it's because it's music, but hmm. there's there's a distinction between musicals and um, plays with songs and then there's things that come between the two i mean i'm i'm not a great musical expert but i am a fan of musical theater so hmm. i don't know how much you know about it yourself Ugh, not a lot really mm. i have seen spam a lot that's all, <laughs> that, all i can say really <laughs> but yeah it, it just, just struck me as kind of smart whereas like there are kind of famous songs from like wicked or another musical i can't name <laughs> where that, that that's that's all I know and I don't know the context of the song but if I was to listen to the Hamilton thing from start to finish I would get the full story yeah and there's some songs that you can listen to from the Hamilton soundtrack and just appreciate them for a good tune but I think mostly they they advance the story cool one of one of the most important and notable things about it which I don't know if you know about it at all because um, I think you said you'd heard of it, but not really delved into yeah. that, is that um, I think that the only character played by a white person is the English King George, and mm-hmm. everybody is recast as like um, black or Latino, and it's all of these, the founding fathers of America played by people who aren't white, oh. and I think oh, that's... Oh, okay. That's, that's significant, yeah. Yeah, it's immensely powerful, and especially in the context of, you know, the Oscars so white story <laughs> that's been that's been going on for the past yeah. few months. And all of the conversations around diversity and especially racial diversity, I think Hamilton's really timely and important in that in that it's directly addressing that discrepancy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting that like um well, not interesting, but it's it's cool to see like a lot of um, artists and things just quietly, like just getting along with it and, and increasing the, those gender gaps and um, racial gaps in the in the things they create. Just quite, just you know, getting on with it and doing it. Where like because the whole thing of like people complaining about like like cast changing from like one race to another is that oh, oh why don't you just make something yourself kind of thing mm-hmm. and it. It's it's we people are <laughs> yeah is is the point I'm trying to make here yeah it's people are are just getting along with it and, and doing it you're just not paying attention kind of thing yeah exactly and I think it's really exciting that that is exactly what Lin Manuel Miranda has done and he's said you know it it makes sense because if he gets cast in something in Hollywood he'll be playing like the best friend and he only gets mm. a starring role if he writes it for himself yeah and. And it's become a massive breakout hit, and that's so exciting. And I hope that happens for a lot more projects like that. Yeah, yeah. 
you want to talk about your video game now? Okay, yes. <laughs> I'll let you. I apologise for not knowing a lot about musicals. That's okay. Um, we can educate you. <laughs> we we need to do a, a a genre deep dive on if you can. <laughs> yeah, I'm up for that. Cool. Um, so yes, I have uh, been deep diving myself on uh, kind of narrative story led video games, basically, and like the the most recent one being a game called Firewatch, which is a game set in 1989, and you play the role of a character named Henry, who is a fire lookout in a a forest in Midwest America. And the idea is that, obviously, in the deep heat of summer, these forests catch fire, and you need, they need people to uh, like spot these fires and uh, call the authorities, basically. And But the deeper reasoning for him being there, um, he, he basically needs to get away from a trouble in his life, and the bulk of the game is talking to another fire lookout in another tower, and you, like, walking around the forest doing various tasks and, like, getting to know this character while a, a story of, like, deep paranoia, like, is created around you. And um, the, the visuals of the game are absolutely brilliant. It's, um, I think the game's uh, artist director, uh, director is uh, Ollie Moss, if you've heard of him. Um... He he did a lot of like interesting uh, like Star Wars posters and um, like really like striking posters over the last couple of years. Right. And like this is like a like passion project for him to make a video game, and it looks like it's a three D painting almost. It's so gorgeous, and um, the whole kind of as I said, the whole kind of structure of the game is you walking around this like various trails in a national park, talking to someone on the other radio, and um, Based uh, any kind of, I say, paranoia story, like is created around it. For one, you never ever meet this person on the radio, so it's kind of like, do you trust them, and how much information about yourself do you relate to someone you've known there, Mm -hmm. and like the kind of loneliness of the forest, and the uh, is someone watching, is someone isn't, do people know we're out here, kind of. It, like atmosphere builds and builds on this like very very simple but very effective story, and um the the kind of satisfying thing about it was so you you get to choose what you say to each other basically so, so if someone asks me a question I get push a button I have three options to answer a question and about like a quarter of the way through she the person on the on the other end of the radio Delilah asks me why I would ever choose to have a job where I stay in the forest for six months and don't see the outside world for for a significant amount of time. Because usually it's people who want to get away from something or be alone for a while, and you have a choice to answer. But I was so slow, like the, and, but there's a timer going down. <laughs> and, you, and you have a choice to answer or not. And I... I the, like, the choice to answer, because... It's revealed to you what why Henry is there at the start of the game, so you go into this story knowing that knowledge, and so you then have a choice to answer or not. And I couldn't, I, I, I didn't know what to say, whether I should or not, and it just, and the time ran down and I didn't answer, and so I, I thought it was significant that though that when I did answer later on, like this like stored up knowledge. Like had way more power later on than it did at the beginning, and that's all through the power to actually choose what to answer mm-hmm. the questions. And it's the the cool thing, like that is cool in itself. And it this game deals with a lot of um, stuff that you wouldn't normally see in a video game. This is not like fighting evil robots or like saving the princess. It's 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 simple emotional problems that people deal with. And like, more or less dealing with Henry Henry's emotions about why he, what he did, what he did beforehand, and why he came to the forest, and and what he he chooses to, how he chooses to fill that problem with himself and talking to Delilah, and how how their relationship builds, mm-hmm. and um, the, the 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 choices in itself are fairly low. Um, low risk, I would say, 
in that the fact they don't change much in the story, but they add a lot of a bigger context. Uh-huh. So at the, at the start of the game, when they're kind of revealing like tiny bits of backstory, you get like little choices like, oh, you buy a dog, you, you, you buy a dog, um, you you get a, a small little thing called this, or you get a small a big German Shepherd called Mayhem, and and that seems like a very small choice then, but later on when you tell Delilah you have a dog, like a bigger backstory is revealed. Like and, and bigger context to your life is revealed. So, so and that, depending on what you would choose there, and what and how you you choose to relay that information to Delilah, changes your relationship with Delilah. And um, that, that's only part of the the talking part is only part of the game. Like the substantial part of this game is wandering around the forest, doing various tasks that the, the fire lookouts would do, and this slowly building story of. Of um, is someone watching us basically, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of the kind of cool interactions are you finding things in the environment, and um, like and like the interactions with you have with Delilah based on those. So um, the early part of the story is your first like job as a lookout is like so you see some fireworks going off in the distance. Says, oh, go check that out. They can't do that in this forest. It'll set the whole thing up. <laughs> On fire. So you go down there, and you 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 find out it's two teenagers skinny dipping in a lake after they've set off these fireworks, and you have a choice of how you solve that problem. Like, <laughs> but basically, it's like, what do you say to them to to try and stop them doing? Because they're because they're they're in the lake already. You're just standing by the shore, and you have a choice of like, oh, I've confiscated your fireworks, or say like, fuck off, basically. <laughs> You can be as aggressive or like passive as you want, and like, what I did was I, I just kind of did a like middle of the road conversation with them, and they were being like really aggressive to me, so I, I grabbed their like stereo which was on the, on the shore and just threw it into the lake. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so and so they obviously reacted to that, and um, I, I confiscated all their beer and all their fireworks. So, <laughs> and, and, and late and later on, you see that in your in your lookout station. Mm. That you pick these up and, and you confiscate them and like and like how some of the early interactions like pay off later later down the road like um, for example uh, right at the end of the game you get to see Delilah's cabin you don't see Delilah but you see her the cabin she stays in and early on there's like various things you talk to her about and like she says oh like I'm drawing you what do you look like and you you, you eventually see that the picture she draws or they talk about a sign for a pond. So I can't remember the name of the pond. It's a really funny name for a pond. But um, you see the sign because they say, oh, loads of people keep stealing it. So we just decided not to put it up anymore. <laughs> and, and kind of things like that. And it, it's really like effective in its, its storytelling. Because you never see your character's face or Delilah. And, and so all your context of these two people are just the voices. And like the environment itself like tells its own story in that. You, you feel like the loneliness and like the paranoia build up because you are you you don't see anyone else there so but things are happening around you and things like change without you seeing them and so like the the paranoia of of like what is going on in this forest like builds up around you and like on top of like your Henry's own internal feelings about what he did before he came to the forest. And I thought it was really effective and primarily because it was more about creating a story rather than telling a story to you while you walk through it, mm-hmm. in a sense. Because a lot of like narrative games previous have have, have just been like you, you you digging up a story, essentially. you like finding notes and like items which, which tie together a story very Whereas this is you literally talking to another character. It sounds fa- sorry. Go on, go on, it go sounds on. quite emotionally complex, and especially if you're taking such an active role in in creating the story, it must be quite involving. Yes, yeah, definitely. I played it in one sitting. It's about three hours long, I want to say, mm-hmm. and um, it is very much on your own judgment of how you you read what Delilah, who is as a person. And, and who Henry and Henry is, and how he he should respond, or how 
or how he did respond to certain aspects of his life. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not a black and white thing. It's it's a very greyness of like, is Henry a good person? Is Delilah telling the truth here? Is are, are the things happening around you your fault or not? You know, mm-hmm. and it's all very very like grey area, but like very effectively done. And um, like the greater context of it, it was really interesting because the, the greater context of the game is that it's that there are the, the, obviously you're a fire lookout and like apparently like in the like seventies, their their like national parks got like impressively defunded. Like to the point where the entire forest was gonna catch on fire and no one be able to do anything about it. So the whole point of them being there is that they suddenly got way more funding, like to put to put them there. So I thought it was great that it had historical context on top of the story that Henry and Delilah are involved in. Plus the teenagers I mentioned at the start play like minor roles later down the line, but it's very much. Like you hear about them at certain points in the story, and they're, they're just having their own adventure somewhere else. So I thought <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, it it re- really effective at what it does. And as I say, like I played um, a game called Gone Home not too long ago, which which is very much a influence in the direction of Firewatch, but it was very much a kind of walk around an empty house and uncover this a story that has already happened. Yeah. Where, where, whereas Firewatch is creating the story as you go. And both are very effective at what they do. Gone Home is about, it's a bit short and like the story is very uh, closer in. It's very much about two characters. Me as a person have met, but the characters in the story have met. But it's it, they're both very good games that are built in limitations but work very effectively with those limitations because it's the problem of, of games is that it's so expensive to, to literally just create and rig a character and lip sync and you know animate that a lot of like independent games have their art budgets very very simplistic over and like limited versus like having every character fully animated talking to you and interacting with you so it's 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 in those limitations where its strengths arise because they they realize those limitations and work best with them mm, i was gonna say i think limitations number one require you to think hard about how to solve the problems and to use your imaginations and yeah are often very inspiring for more creative work if if there's only so much you can do you're like okay well what can i do within that yeah it's it's been interesting for for me who's been playing video games for fifteen twenty years at this point to see like the, the evolutionary line from games from like nineteen ninety eight to now mm-hmm. in the sense that like a lot of like old video games like they didn't have a lot of dialogue and you were very much a silent protagonist walking through an environment and like maybe like picking up audio logs and making very minor choices. And, uh, and have that evolve and change over time and have have the stories shift in focus from like very horror games or like sci-fi adventures to more more nuanced uh, like emotional stories and um, it's been it's been incredible and I think Gone Home was like a, a big signal flare of like that change as well as um, the Walking Dead Telltale games which were like very story focused like choice based which I think two people from who worked on Firewatch worked on that game. So there's, again, a through line from there. And and it's it's very kind of cool to see, like, the influences and evolutionary very open and clear mm-hmm. in, in that sense. Yeah, because when, when you're inside that process, it's a bit, it's a bit harder to see the, the, well, to see the process, but when you look, look back on it, it's, yeah, you can see how things have developed and evolved. Yeah, and I mean, st- stylistically, it's very, like, welcome. It's something I didn't mention in the in the Deadpool film, but um, I didn't like how grey the Deadpool film was in, in terms of, like, the action scenes at the end. and Because, to me, comic books are full of, like, life and colour and, like, contrast. 
whereas a lot of Deadpool for me was flatly lit, but like Firewatch very much used like colour and like atmosphere to to absolutely great effect. Like um apart from what I did mention it I see it happens over like the course of a summer and they use like very quick editing after you've achieved like a certain point to like cut between days. Mm-hmm. And so and so as well as that they use like the time of day to like as a kind of emotional uh, socket point, I guess, like like this takes part of this time of day, but they're having this kind of conversation that fits with that time of day kind of thing. So, so like, there's a very like emotional point where Delilah and Henry are talking while they watch just a fire off in the distance, and they have kind of a heart to heart conversation in, in in the dark while this like glowing fire is just blossoming off and it's really well done and they use as I said they use the time of day really well like to incite danger and like emote in like love in into certain ways it's set in a forest did you say yes, yes. yeah well, I think um when it's I imagine it's very dependent on natural light and when you're in that sort of environment it's you do take visual cues, don't you, to to know what yeah. what time is day, and you are entirely dependent on. I mean, I assume the guy has like a torch or something, and yeah, <laughs> there yeah. are fires, but yeah, it's, you're very dependent on those visual cues to know where you should be, what's safe, and so it sounds like it does a very good job of replicating that. Yes, yes, um, exactly, and there are points where you go into like a cave system as well, where obviously tone changes there and there's a very significant point there which I won't go into but um, it's yeah it's very effective in, in I guess environmental storytelling mm-hmm. in, in that like the surroundings di- dictate almost your emotion to a certain extent within the context of the conversations you're having and I mean I, I thought the like the conversation system was, was quite effective and I, but at times I did get a bit annoyed that some things were like too hard of a choice <laughs> like uh, uh, a bit i mean early on when they're trying they're like detailing some backstory of henry you have literally two choices and they're like like incredible swerves either, either direction mm-hmm. and so and you really have to choose like struggle to choose which one you want to go with and and, and I, I wasn't too sure about that i guess it's trying to push you like in certain directions or make you re- like, you feel the emotion of that situation of what you would do yourself, but sometimes that didn't feel quite so nuanced as maybe I would want it to be if I was in that situation. You know? <laughs> do you have to respond, or can you let it time out? Um, of those early uh, things, no, because it, it's literally just text and those two options, and to respond, you have to, to continue. You have to choose one of those choices. Right. But the, the conversations with Delilah... They can time out most of the time, which can be used to, like as an like a storytelling device or not. Because as I say, I didn't reveal the information that Henry wants to keep a secret to a certain extent until very later on in my story, where he could reveal it quite early. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that would have paid off if I was to play it again, which I do want to play it again because there's um there's quite a lot of um Easter eggs in it apparently, ah. like. Because it is, it's a it's a big forest. And it, while it, it take, it's quite easy to go down the select routes. It is quite linear in like some of the routes you can take. But um, there's apparently a turtle somewhere, <laughs> which you can adopt as a pet at various points. Well, that definitely sounds worth replaying for. Yes, and I didn't see that turtle at all, so I want to find that turtle. <laughs> but as I was saying, with like the um, the beer cans that are confiscated or like the fireworks, you can. There are various choices you can make in that sense as well. Like, you can be a good fire fire watch and like stomp out any like campfires you find or, or not. Uh, I don't know if that changes or anything like the dramatic story, but it's it's just one of those minor things that helped the character of Henry for me. It's like, what would he do here? <laughs> would it would he act? Would he, would he take his his role as as fire watch responsibly, or would he 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 do the like nasty thing? I mean. For me, that it varied between things because I confiscated the whiskey and stomped out the fire. 
So I, I, I stole some whiskey from someone, <laughs> from someone, but stomped out the fire. So I was doing my good job, but I was still stealing from someone. So. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. And I hope to see more kind of games do this kind of narrative storytelling, but like try to do interesting things with the actions the play actually takes. Because like a, a big like criticism of some of these games um, is that there is less a game there than, say, other video games, which it begs the question, what is a video game? And it's a horrible debate to get into because it never ends well. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, like, is there any sort of consensus that a video game it requires a sort of kind of gameplay? Um, some people would say that a game needs a kind of failure state to be considered a video game, mm-hmm. like you die or you fail a task, but no, I <laughs> don't think in Firewatch there are any kind of failing of a certain task. Mm. It's almost just how you respond and how the game proceeds, really. But um, but that comes from the origins of video games being arcade machines, and like which came from basically pinball machines. Yeah. Which is like there is there is a literal failure state for you to put more money in to keep going, <sighs> and it, it's it's the problem where it's like just interactive media has that origin point. So there's an expect expectation of it being similar to that, and then then the double point of like video games are expensive, so there's an expectation of value at a certain extent. Like let's say Firewatches was fifteen pound and three hours, which is about the same as I paid to watch Deadpool, which is about a two-hour movie, so it's almost equivalent, but like you can buy a £60 video game which would last 180 hours. Mm-hmm. And like there's an expectation of value from some people that that you should get, that like, uh, like say, like less than six hours isn't worth the money they paid kind of thing, which I, I don't see the, the, the need to have that debate because it's obviously the experience you have is the, the worth I take away from it, but... Yeah, I think I would side with you on that. And then there's a difference between how long does it take you to play through the game because, you know, your character keeps dying and how many times would you like to replay the game and get everything out of it? And Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I how much did re- you enjoy it? Yeah, I can see the reasoning why you would say, oh, I'm not buying this because there's not enough game there for me to last whatever amount of time because I don't have any money. I fully respect someone not buying a video game because it's too expensive and not worth to them the amount of time they would put into it mm-hmm. but um but like it the debate shifts like a a one-on-one fighting game can literally last infinite time <laughs> because it's how many times you want to have that one-on-one fight it's up to you and and like i could again i could replay firewatch tonight and have a slightly different experience with it and add more context to it it's it's a weird debate because obviously they have their capitalist origins of wanting people to pour money into them and the question of value, combined with the fact that on the like Steam, which I bought it through on on my PC, they have like sales on video games like every three months where you can buy a, a like a fully like a full almost a full library of games for like a quarter of the price that they came out with. So it's the Price of the claim of value on the games is really in a weird state because a lot of people wait like six months to play something or mm. whatever because they know it's going to drop in value. So it's it's tough, but I I kind of enjoyed my time with it. I, I thought fifteen pound was perfectly fine to pay for three hours. You know, it's <laughs> it's per, it's completely up to the person who. The people who buy it, it's not a, a one and zero debate. Mm-hmm. And the the wider debate on the the value we place on culture is it's quite a current thing, really, but probably a little bit beyond the scope of our podcast. But it's interesting to talk about. Yes, I mean we can get into the whole like Netflix versus whatever. Like I can play six pound a month and watch infinite television. <laughs> That's the dream, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That so that was a um. Oh, oh, there's one other like narrative game I want to mention, mm-hmm. which I think this is a free game. So <laughs> completely squashing our game is uh, the full title. Oh, what's the full title? Oh, it's called 
Dr. Lansdorff and something and something and something and something. Oh, oh yeah, okay, I'll be Googling uh, that right now. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Let me just... It's called Dr. Lanskov, the Tiger, the Terribly Cursed Emerald, and Whirlwind Heist. And it, it's a 20-minute game um, vo- voiced by Simon Amstel. Excellent. From uh, Nevermind the Buzzcocks and various other things. Um, stand-up comedian, I think, at the moment. And um, it's a... I don't think I want to say too much about it, but that anyone who's interested in these kind of games should just play it. Because it's it's 20 minutes long. And it's really funny and really subversive if you play a lot of video games and just kind of how interactive media works. And it's just well worth playing. Sounds good. 20 yeah. minutes can probably... 20 minutes for something free can probably yeah. push to that. I played it directly after I finished and gone home and I was just like, that was a really good night of entertainment. Really, <laughs> yes, I think that is a show. I think you're right. Yes, and right, okay, Sarah, where can we find you on the internet? Okay, I'm on Twitter at S. Barnard. Um, that is also my Tumblr now and my Instagram. Basically, just type S. Louise Barnard into the internet and you will definitely find me. Mm-hmm. And you can find me and my various things at RL Rudge on Twitter and I have a webcomic called Galactic Scrap Collector, which is on Tapastic right now. You can go to pastic.com slash series slash galactic scrap collector. And I have a book called An Unwritten Adventure, which you can find on Etsy at Richard Rudge Art, I want to say. <laughs> and yes, I'm all over things Richard Rudge. You can probably find me pretty easily. And that has been a show. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. I have quite a few things to talk about. <laughs> Good talk. And yeah, yeah. And we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.